If you're wondering about the red shirt, um, not the red shirt, but the cardinal shirt, I have, this is, this is actually um, wildly coincidental. I have had the color red in my head in regard to Ruth for my entire life. And I have no idea why. Like when I think of the book of Ruth, it's like it's spelled in red letters, which is silly, but that's just kind of the way you do things in life, you know, like, I don't know. And so I guess I subliminally went to the closet to go, I'm going book of Ruth. So I went for red. Well, then my Cardinals are in Atlanta tonight, tomorrow night and Thursday night for what should be a clean sweep for the Braves. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, I'm going to represent and put, put it out there in the atmosphere so that people that are watching tomorrow can get serious with their prayer life <laughs> and help pray in a victory at least Wednesday or Thursday. So, um, so that's, you know, that's out there. Um, I'll be there. The, well, I'll be there tomorrow night and Thursday night, so if I can bring them any good, any good luck, I'll do my best. Um, in the meantime, let's get going on what will ultimately be our third actual session of talking about Ruth, but our first actual full lesson on Ruth. Last week was the intro, and I hope you took some time and you at least went over the texts. We tried to, I think we had a 20, 22 minute intro last week. So for those watching Ruth number one, there is a Ruth, an introduction to Ruth that I highly recommend. And here's why, because that lesson sets the context for this book and the backdrop and context for this book might be the most vital backdrop and context of any Old Testament book, because I propose, and I'm not alone in this, uh, but I propose that Ruth could be um, somewhat a counter-narrative to what was being presented by the prophets Ezra and Nehemiah. This idea, Ezra and Nehemiah capitalizing on the Torah's mandate that a, that a Moabite not enter the congregation of the Lord up to ten generations. Um, literally a edict laid down in the original scriptures that denied the stranger that was from Moab or Ammon essentially from ever participating in the worship of the God of Israel. When Israel comes back to the land in the fifth century BC, Ezra and Nehemiah capitalize on that and make it a primary part of their message, which is no Moabites. And if you're married to a Moabite, don't marry Moabitess women. Tell, they tell this to the men, don't marry Moabitess women. And then Nehemiah goes a step farther and says that if you are married to Moabite women, well, he slaps them in the face and pulls their hair and spits on them and yells at them. And by the end of Ezra, they send 117 wives and their children back to Moab. So they break up 117 families and send their wives and kids back. And there's no real simple way to say that. I mean, there's no, you know, you can't, you can't clean it up. You send 117 people, you split 117 families. And so I'm not, I, I don't have the right to say why it's in the Bible and I'm not going to defend it. I think Ruth does it for me. And that's why I'm excited about this little letter because I, and the reason I say it does it for me is I think that Ruth is a piece of literature that is being presented inside the same world as Ezra and Nehemiah. And we walked through last week why I don't believe it falls 
in the spot that it is chronologically in your Bible, which is right after Judges. We're going to read in a minute why they did that. But the, the entire formula of this book feels like it falls later. I'll talk about that in a second. Before I do, let me show you how this book ends. Ruth chapter 4. No bread in the house of bread. I'm going to save that. We're going to jump into that title in a second. But look at the fourth chapter. Also, the neighbor woman gave him a name saying there is a son. You're not, this is way ahead of where we are. But I just want you to see how this, the foot falls in this book. There's a son born to Naomi and they called his name Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. The only thing left after this is a genealogy. And it's David's genealogy. And it's two or three verses long. So the book of Ruth literally ends at King David. It ends with the baby David that grows up to be the giant killer David that grows up to be King David, who, of course, you know, is the lineage in which Christ comes along as son of David. So Ruth, and by the way, the first time the word David appears in the Bible is in the book of Ruth. It's in this moment when we meet baby David who goes on to be the king. He is the central royal figure of the entire Hebrew literature. He's what's leading us up to Jesus. And yet Ruth is being blatant. This book is blatantly trying to tell its audience. David came from a Moabitess woman. A Moabite had a baby that had a baby that had a baby named David. And that's inside of 10 generations. And so if Moabitess women are so bad and their offspring should be kicked out, and you should bust up their families and send them back to Moab. What do we do with our own hero? What do we do with the lineage of King David? Was David disqualified? This is what Ruth is asking without ever asking it. By, by closing your book with that, you're asking a question. Is David disqualified from being the king? Is he disqualified from entering the sanctuary like he does? All the way up, in fact, he enters the sanctuary and eats the shoe bread inside of the holy place at one point. Is he disqualified because his relative is Moabite? Ruth is asking the question to the audience and to us, is this how we want to govern ourselves? Do we want to live in this world where people are disqualified from knowing God? Where people don't get to belong because of their heritage, the tongue they use, the language they speak, the color of their skin, who their daddy was, what part of the world they grew up in. Is this the faith we want to rally around? That's what Ruth, in all of her beauty and her gentleness and her peaceableness, what a book, that's what she's doing. And David is a king who has some sort of soft spot somehow, some way for the Moabites. So just in case we need any other piece of literature outside of Ruth that might contribute to the idea that David was not so rambunctious against the Moab as his enemies, let me give you one little spot from 1 Samuel 22, 1. Remember the famous cave of Adullam? We've all heard of cave of Adullam where David goes and encourages himself in the Lord. Let me read that in its context. 1 Samuel 22, 1, David therefore departed and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them and there were about 400 men with him. And if I could just pause and play preacher for a second, not Bible teacher, but Bible preacher, how you preach this verse is, is that this is what's attracted that's what's attracted to the Jesus figure. 
to this day, people in distress, people in debt, people discontented. That's what the gospel attracts at its core. That's why it finds you in your lowest place. This is who comes and rallies around David. And then David, there's about 400 men with him. And then David does this, verse three. He went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And here's an interesting moment from the David story where David takes his family into Moab to shelter them there. And maybe he does this because in his family story, his great, great grandma went into Moab and met what would be a relative and brought her back to Bethlehem where David is born, by the way, the city of David, Bethlehem, and a Moabitess was in his bloodline. And David never forgets that. And for David, the Moabites are a people worth communicating with and worth talking to. And I don't know, but it's interesting. And so when you study these things, you need to at least lay them out there as possibilities for what it is that we're seeing Ruth falls in a spot in the text uh, within the, the, the chronological flow of the Bible that I think she's out of place. Her letter falls behind Judges. I propose it should fall much deeper, much, much deeper in the Old Testament canon. Let me give you a couple reasons why. Let's read the first five verses of the letter. Before we do, let me tell you this. I'm not going to treat this one like we've treated any other book. Every book we've done to this point was an exegetical verse-by-verse examination. I don't mean we won't read the whole book. My goal is always to read the whole book out loud. But as far as going verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, it's not how I feel like you've got to approach romance stories. This is a piece of literature that's trying to tell you a, big story, a little story in a big world and a little story that has a big meaning. And I don't want to damage it by running you to death into Hebrews and cross-reference and hit this verse and this verse and this verse, Hebrew language. We'll use Hebrew language. You got to. We'll do a little bit tonight. But I'm just going to let you know. Okay, so there'll be times when we read five verses, six verses, eight verses, and, and we don't comment much. We just kind of tell the story. And, and that's why. You got to take these differently than you take Paul or than you take the Gospels, as far as I'm concerned. So forgive me in advance because it's going to be a little bit different the way that we treat it. There will be some nights in this study we cover probably a whole chapter. There will be other nights in this study we don't cover as much because I want to take our time and investigate why this matters. So let's read the first five verses and, and then go to work on it. It came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. And that line right there is why the Protestant Bible sticks Ruth behind the book of Judges. Because it says that it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. That there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah, New King James, just pause, just comma, Bethlehem, comma, Judah, but Bethlehem was a generic word at the time of the judges. Um, it meant house of bread, and it could have been any place that harvested bread. Any place that baked bread could have been a Bethlehem. Um, Beth is always house of in Hebrew, and so Lahem is bread, and so house of bread, it will eventually develop into its own city its own village, of which, of course, David 
will be a part. And Jesus is born there as well. Went to dwell in the country of Moab. Moab lies just east of the Dead Sea. Modern day Jordan. And it's not part of the promised land, the people of God. So to cross the Dead Sea or to cross that area to go into Moab would have been to leave the land of Judah. He goes with his wife and he goes with his two sons. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. The layout is odd, isn't it? The name of the man is this. The name of his wife is this. The name of his kid is this. The name of his kid is this. It's an indication that someone's trying to tell you something. They're not trying to tell you a story. They're trying to tell you something in a story. They're laying out the characters like you would a play. Like you'd say, here's a character in scene one. He's, this guy's going to show up in scene two. And there's a reason for this. These, they all go into the country of Moab and they remain there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left and her two sons um, remained there as sojourn. Technically, the Hebrew phrase for remained is that they're traveling. They don't, expect, they don't expect to stay long. That's the indication. They go in, but while they're there, Elimelech died. She's left with her two sons. Verse 4. They took wives of the women of Moab. And you can underline it just with the big highlighter because this is exactly what Nehemiah and Ezra are mad about in their day is the taking of wives from Moab and living with these women who are not part of the family of God. And here it is at the top of Ruth, highlighted. They take wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one is Orpah. The name of the other is Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. And both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her sons and her husband. At least 10 times in this little book of Ruth, we have Hebrew idioms that appear in no early Hebrew literature. Nothing before about the 5th, 4th, 5th, 6th century BC. In other words, the typologies being used in Ruth do not exist until you get to the late period of biblical writing, which is, a nut, which is an internal indicator that you're dealing with the text. Remember we did this with John? Early on in our John study, I started to point out two or three or four little moments in the Gospel of John that put it really late. Um, sea of Tiberias. Remember that? Whenever John calls the Sea of Galilee the Sea of Tiberias, he's the only gospel writer that calls it the Sea of Tiberias, and that we don't have any writings of it being called the Sea of Tiberias until almost the end of the first century because nobody called it the Sea of Tiberias in Jesus' day because you wouldn't have called the Sea of Galilee the Sea of a Roman Emperor. And so John comes late and he's writing his name of the sea into a gospel account that didn't exist during the gospel account. That's how we pick out in biblical narrative that a book might lie at a different point in the timeline than we think it does. So we get thrown off within the days of the judges thinking it's way back here. But about 10 different moments in the book, you, you even already read a couple of them. One in, one in verse 4, they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth and they dwelt there 10 years. That phrase took wives in the Hebrew is a word that never appears until the last part of the Old Testament, the, the, the verb form conjugated the way it is there. That's just one little thing. Um, the beauty is no faults, no bad characters, no villains, an entirely peaceable book. I love what 
Hebrew historian Robert Alter says, this is one of the few successful stories in any historical literature that concentrates almost exclusively on good people and the story works. Stories don't work if you don't have villains. That's a storytelling rule. You either have to have a villain or you have to have an obstacle that your hero must overcome. Either internal, that's, that's the whole Joseph Campbell hero with a thousand faces. The hero has to go into this battle. He has to fight something. And only when he fights something becomes a hero can he win. So, put it where you put it. Put, put the book early, put the book late, but in wherever you place it, recognize that something happens with Ruth that's never happened before at this point. A book that works and everybody in it's good. We don't have a bad character. We have some characters that are sort of better than others. We have, we have characters who act slightly more noble than other characters, but no one's villainous. No one's evil. No, there is no true antagonist. Why is that important? Because if this is written in the 5th century BC, we have an antagonist called the stranger, called the Moabite, called the bad guy, called the other, called the people we don't associate with, we don't do business with, we certainly don't marry and we don't have kids with. To the point that if you're married to them, kick them out, send them back to Moab. They're the bad guy. And here comes a little piece of literature going, let me introduce you to a story that you're going to know really, really well about your king, King David. Let me tell you about his family. And in it, it's full of Moabites. One of the things you're going to see in one of our subtitles at some point is probably going to be Ruth the Moabitess. Because this book just repeats that over and over and over. Because it doesn't want its audience to forget that your heroine character in this story is actually supposed to be a bad guy. She's supposed to be a Moabitess. You're not supposed to like her. She's supposed to be wicked. She's supposed to be evil. These are the bad people. And yet here comes this book in which this character rises above all of the things we're supposed to think about her. What a remarkable thing. Now, names matter, okay? Um, names matter because names stand for something. In situations where people are named in the Bible, we have multiple moments in the Bible where their name is changed. Why does an Abram become an Abraham? Why does a Jacob become an Israel? Why does an Esau become an Edom? Why do we have name changes in the Bible? Because they are indicative of character change. Something happens to our character, and then as they transform into what they could be, their name transforms with them. This is so popular that Saul of Tarsus liked it. So when he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, he just does what his heritage did. I've had a change of heart. I've had a change of mind. Guess what else I'm going to have? I'm not Saul of Tarsus anymore. You can call me Paul. And we do. Like, we don't say Ephesians was written by Saul. It was. But we say Paul because the change of character led to a change of name. That doesn't automatically lead to a change of name, but I hope you understand what I mean. In the literature, when we change the character's name, we're doing so because what they were born with doesn't work for who they are now. But when we're telling a story that's meant to tell you another story, 
We do it the way we write books now. We give characters names that are indicative of what is about to happen to them. So, for instance, the names and the settings are indications that portions of this story are being schematically designed to make a point. David is a real person born from a real bloodline. But we got a lot of characters in his story that we don't know what their names were. So if I'm going to tell the story, I'm going to make some of them up. Like, we can be pretty sure Elimelech and Naomi are in his bloodline. Elimelech's name means my God is king. Naomi's name means pleasant or sweet. Kind of a good way for the book to kick off because it's a pleasant and sweet book. And she has a lot of identity problems. We'll talk about this as we go. She kind of doesn't see herself that way. She sees herself as something else. She tries to change her name in the middle of the book. Naomi does and tells everybody to start calling her something else because she feels like she's something else. And the narrator ignores her and never calls her by that name because sometimes you need ignored when you try to change your identity because you're changing it to a lie instead of who you really are. And we'll get into that because that book gets into that and we can't get around it. But there's also some guys that you can tell no one named them this when they were born, namely Malon and Chilion, because you don't name your kid Sickness and his little brother Destruction. You just don't do it. Like, what do you want to name this kid? Ah, he looks sick to me. Let's just call him sickly or sickness. But Malon and Chilion are the two young men who marry Orpah and Ruth. And they are the two characters who die on the journey into Moab. They spend 10 years in Moab. They marry two Moabitish girls, but they don't make it back. And I don't know exactly what happened, but I've got a theory for you. I've got a theory that Malon got sick and died and that Chilion was in a destructive accident. And I come up with that theory by this brilliant eisegesis. Malon's name means sickness and Chilion's name means destruction and neither one of them made it back alive. So I don't know how they died I hope you can tell what I'm doing here. I'm, I'm doing what Ruth is meant to do. It's telling you a story so that you will go into the story and go, I don't need all the details. I kind of got what I need. Malon and Chilion aren't going to make it back. <laughs> if you go into the situation and your name is sickness and destruction, you're not coming home. Bethlehem is in there as well. And Bethlehem is of particular importance because it means house of bread. And I put up for you one sentence, which is note the irony of Bethlehem, because the irony is Elimelech takes his wife and his sons out of Bethlehem to go into Moab because there's a famine. The Bible says there's a famine in the land of Bethlehem. There's a famine in the house of bread. There's no bread in the house of bread. The irony is you're in the place, the very name of which means house of bread, and there's no bread to be found. And so you have to leave that place to go into another. And I want to, I want to pause there for a little bit because as I said a moment ago, sometimes you've got to preach more than you teach in some of these verses. And this is a preach moment in this verse. You don't want to, you don't want to preach your way out of teaching it because we do that a lot as preachers. We preach, 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 and we, st- we forget that we were supposed to apply, but we just get so excited preaching. So there's teach to be done, but there's preach here too. And part of the preach is that this gets replayed often in the lives of believers. 
The place where we're supposed to be feeding is dry. The bread is stale, if existing at all, to the point that so many of us have turned to Moab, to the land east of the Dead Sea, to the Jordan, to the world. We've turned to its art, its culture, its music, its entertainment, its stuff to try and fill the soul. And I'm not condemning it. I say this carefully. I'm not condemning that we turn to the stuff of the world to find wholeness. Why wouldn't we if the place that is supposed to have bread has no bread? It isn't on... This is crucial in Ruth. It's not on Elimelech and Naomi that they go to Moab. They go to Moab because Moab has bread. They leave Bethlehem not because they're sinners. This is the point of the book of Ruth. It's not that bad people go down into Moab. It's that sometimes they had to go into Moab because there wasn't anything for them in the place where they were. And my heart breaks as someone who loves the gospel and the church that so many of my brothers and sisters and me included have so often turned to the land east of the Dead Sea. It's east of Eden. It's outside of our paradise. It's the only place we know that we can go get something worth eating. And only there in their culture, in their music, in their movies, in their stuff, in their entertainment, in their joy, can we find anything that helps get us through the day. And the place that we're supposed to be feeding is oftentimes void. No bread in the house of bread. Nothing fresh. Just stale, warmed over stuff you heard 15 times. Same song, same sermon, same point, same principle. Repackaged to a new generation. Repackaged. Stuff that was being eaten years ago. But we've taken it out of the bag, put a new bag on it resealed it, put a new label on it. It's not working. There's no life there. There's no hope there. There's no peace there. There's no joy there because there's no sustenance there. So if you want to take this to the next level, you want to preach this and you want to preach it right, then put Jesus in the story. Because if you put Jesus in the story, you got something to do. You got, you got a place to go. You got hope. Otherwise you got principles. So Remember this from the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Jesus gets in the boat, goes to the other side. The next day, John's the only one that tells you this. The other, all four Gospels tell you the feeding of the 5,000. Only John tells you the next morning. And the next morning, the crowd that was at the feeding of the 5,000 follows Jesus. They wake up, realize he's not there. They get in boats. They go to the other side. Because they want more. They want a revival. They want to make him king. And so when Jesus confronts them in John 6, the crowd says to him in verse 30, what sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? And how dare they? Because he fed 5,000 people yesterday and they were in the crowd. Because this is what always happens in the land of the miraculous. You just need more. So people don't ever believe the lie that if you just saw a miracle from God, everybody would believe. No, they wouldn't. They'd believe till next week when they needed another one. Faith comes by hearing of Christ, not by seeing miracles. Never works that way. Israel wanders in the wilderness, get miracle, 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 still don't believe God. Jesus comes along and goes, you people won't believe unless you see. And the reason is is because if you can see it, you don't need faith. You can just reach out and touch it. 
And now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence. What are we left with? Faith. The belief that he is as good as he says he is. So here comes the crowd looking for a miracle. Our fathers ate manna in the desert. And as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They try to use scripture on Jesus. 32, Jesus flips it. Most assuredly, I say to you. Now watch this. I don't, know what, I don't know how hard we hammered down on this in the John study. I hammered down on everything in the John study. So likely we were here for weeks. But I didn't go back and re-listen to it because I don't do that often. I like to be in the moment, fresh. Here's what I see in this now. Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. What you ate in the wilderness was not from heaven. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. What dad gives you is real bread. Okay, what did Moses give them in the wilderness? Don't get trapped right here. See, we get trapped. We think this means manna. What did Moses give Israel? Moses didn't give them manna, by the way. Moses had nothing to do with the manna. What did Moses give them? Moses comes down off the mountain with his face covered and carrying the Ten Commandments and hands it to Israel and goes, Thus saith the Lord, we live by this. John opens his book, five chapters in front of this, John chapter 1. The law was given by Moses, grace and truth came by Jesus. So he's already prefaced this five chapters earlier by saying what Moses did was bring the standard of the law to Israel. Jesus says, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. That's not what's going to sustain you is the law. That's not what's going to get you through the dark night is the law. That's not what's going to help you when you're down is the law. Performance, standards, morality codes, hoops to jump through. That's not going to make you live. In fact, if you do it enough, it's just going to kill you. That's why Paul called it the ministry of death. Because if you put a hoop in front of someone and say jump, you can make them jump till they die. <laughs> That's the nature of jumping. you you got to stop sometime. And if you stop, then you're not jumping anymore. And if the rule is you got to be jumping, then you better be jumping. Right? That's the law. That's the works-based performance i've got to do what i'm supposed to do he goes that's not heaven my father gives you the real bread bread for the bread of god is he who come down from heaven and give life to the world so the real bread isn't even the feeding of the five thousand. what i did yesterday was fill your belly that's why you're back for more today real bread isn't tangible it's not something you can judge by what you do it's something that you accept by faith it's something that fills that void in your soul. And they go, oh, that's what we want, 34. Give us this bread always. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And then when you get down to 48, he doubles down. In case his crowd forgot. Because he gets in the middle of another speech. And he circles his way back and goes, don't forget, I am the bread of life. What's the antidote then for people leaving the house of bread that has no bread and going into Moab? How do we get bread? What is bread? It's the Jesus that we have so often moved on from for other cool Christian stuff. The Jesus that was the centerpiece of our faith is the reason we got saved. He's the one who hanged there on that cross, the one whose body they tore down, and three days later he rebuilt it. And what he built was his bride, and then he keeps bringing people into his body. That that was attractive to us. That was what what made us want to live for God. It was Jesus. That, hanging between heaven and earth. That, that takes away the sin of the world. That, that 
fan is in his hand. He thoroughly purges my foot. I could be, I could be somebody in him. I, I, could, I could change my name in him. And then we get in him. And then it, 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 so many other things. And before long, there's no bread on the table because Jesus becomes hard to find. Not near as cool to preach about. Not near as cool to sing about. There's a, there's, there's a lot of other stuff to do. We got stuff to do. And we wonder why. And I, this is not condemning. I, I, I said we, not you. We wonder why we turn to Moab frequently. Because, and, and, I, and I believe that if we don't return to the fresh bread of who Jesus is, we will simply borrow the Moabite tactics and pull them into our circles of fellowship because at least people can see that and feel that. And this is not a cry for a return to yesteryear the way things used to be because in reality, we, this isn't a new issue. This was in Ruth chapter 1. I mean... We've been leaving the house of bread to go to Moab as long as there's been a Moab. We've been leaving the house of bread to go to Moab as long as there's been houses of bread. Why? Because as long as there's been houses of bread, there's been moments of famine. But Jesus is no famine. He who eats, Jesus says, he who eats of this bread never gets hungry again, never gets thirsty again. He said, I will literally be the bread that your forefathers thought they were getting in the wilderness when they ate manna. I'll be the thing that when they eat of me, it doesn't grow. If they tried to eat too much in the, in the wilderness, if they tried to save for tomorrow, it, it, it rotted and grew worms. And Jesus is saying, I don't, there's no rot in me. I don't, get, I don't get stale. I don't get old. I don't get bored. I don't get boring. He is the bread. I, I, want, I want the bread. I want the bread that is Christ. And I want it more than I want the Moab, but that's not unusual. So do you. Anybody that's met Jesus, is, they, want, they want that Jesus that they met. So how do we return to that? It's a little bit of what we talked about last week in the, in the main sermon in here of how can you be sure. The reality is, is, is that spending time with Jesus, finding a way to carve space in your life in a world where we do carve space for the things that we want and carving space for Jesus, just time spent alone with him so we can remember what the bread smells like. Time spent tasting so we can remember what the taste was like because our tasters messed up. We've ate so much other stuff. It's why in, 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 a, in a beautiful way in the Eucharist, we get to return in some respects to the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus in a very literal way while combining it with our faith, coming to the table of the Lord to eat the bread that he brings us. Um, I don't fault Elimelech. I want to I I land here tonight. I don't fault Elimelech and I don't fault Naomi or Malon or Chilion for going down into Moab. Malon and Chilion are not judged because their parents go to Moab. Ruth isn't sending the message that if you go to Moab, God will kill your kids. See how we can go in to preach and then we can leave Jesus. And I've watched a lot of people go from teach to preach and run right past Jesus. And here's how you do that. If you go down into Moab, God will judge you. God might judge you and take the things that are most important to you. Four chapters after this in John, Jesus says, everybody that came before me is a thief and a robber. 
The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that you might have life. He did that so that you would never accuse God of killing your kids in Moab. So that you would realize that if they died, they died. But God didn't take them. Because the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And the thief is not the father. And the thief is not the son. The son is the door by which you get to come back to Bethlehem. In fact, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they go in and they go out and they find pasture. They go to Moab and they come to Bethlehem and they go to Moab and they come to Bethlehem and they're mine and they can find pasture in me. And it, it's not an encouragement to go to Moab, but the reality is, is that God's not chasing you with a stick into Moab. And then when he catches you there, he snaps your leg and then lets you die by the side of the road. You have a better father than that. And to accuse God of such is, is the spirit of the Antichrist. And it ignores the price paid by Jesus. So I do not condemn this. Ruth has no condemnation in it. There's no condemnation of Elimelech and Elimelech. But it's a story to tell its audience that the people of God have had relations with Moab in the past. That unfortunately, you have not always been the repository of good things. In fact, you've had to go to the people you hate and let them feed you. Moab had to sustain some of your, your fathers and your mothers in a time when you couldn't. And maybe this is a shot across the bow to the Ezra's and the Nehemiah's who are saying that Moab has nothing to offer the people of God. And perhaps the writer of Ruth is saying, don't be so sure it hasn't always been that way. Don't be so sure that the people you cut off have not had something they can provide you with, haven't had something they can teach you. Because the truth is that if you'll pay attention, you can learn something from everywhere and from everyone. And so there is something to be learned from Moab, but you're not going to learn it if they're the enemy and you hate them. And you're busting up 117 families and sending wives and kids home. There's nothing to learn from Moab. So out of the gate, Ruth has given the audience something to consider. Malon and Chilion die. They take to themselves two wives, Moabite women, while they're in the land of Moab. Ruth and Orpah. I'll close here. Naomi rises, verse 6, with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. There's bread in the house of bread again. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And you can almost feel you, the music swell in the background of this little movie because you know dangers around the corner because... Two Moabitess women are making their way back to Judah, and Moabites are not welcome in the land of Judah. And surely this is going to go bad. Now, the reason I've been hammering you with context and backdrop is because I want it to always be there in your mind so that when you read this letter, you'll realize I've tried to hammer two things, the backdrop, but I've also tried to hammer the beauty of Ruth. No bad guys. No villains. Peace. And we're going to push this story into that dark setting. So that every time you suspect it's about to go south, it doesn't. And it's the writer of Ruth showing you things are not as they appear. Don't judge so quickly. So get ready for a story that keeps throwing you curveballs. And Ruth is a story throwing curveballs and fastball counts, to use a baseball analogy. 
And a curveball and a fastball count is hard to hit. And that's Ruth. It keeps coming at you from different angles. No bread in the house of bread is a tragedy. <laughs> Which is ironic because I'm teaching a book that has no tragedy. And it has no darkness. And it has no villain. To subtitle a letter, No Bread in the House of Bread is a pretty dark place to be. But let me end positively. They come back to the house of bread because the truth is, is that Jesus now, as the bread of life, never puts us through a famine. If you're going through a famine in the house of bread, it's of your own devising. And if you're in the house where there's supposed to be bread and you can't find any, then you need to get a new set of keys and get your address changed and find a new house. I mean, the truth is, is that Jesus is the bread. And I don't mean, I'm not just talking about church and organizations, but your own life. Maybe it's time to shake some things up. Okay, this is your responsibility. You can't push this off on, this is so easy for us to do is push it off on churches and pastors. That preacher needs to get saved. We always do that foolishness. And the reality is we've got 12 Bibles at home and some spare time. <laughs> you know? It's like we've got, we've got a spot we could pray. We figure out how to stream while we're there and we figure out how to listen to music and, and read books. I do it all the time. And there could be a moment in there where I could see if I could encounter Jesus. And he's always standing somewhere waiting. And you know it because he's the bread of life. He's always sort of standing in his kitchen baking bread and he's waving the smell your way. You know, if you'll, if you'll pay attention. He is. He's sort of wafting it your way going, come on in. There's more where that you want to taste this? Come on in. This is good stuff. And, uh, and we know that it is. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to take the journey with Ruth. We only saw her name once tonight in this story, but I said it a lot. We'll do that every week. Ruth is one of two women that Mary... One, one of two boys that are mentioned in this story, but that she comes from the very place of the outcast and the stranger. She takes it on, the titular character of this story takes it upon herself to be the example for all Moabites. And I can't say this enough, by the time we get to Jesus, Ruth transforms into a Samaritan. And what I mean by that is when you get to Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John has Jesus constantly picking up the Samaritan. Whether it's the Samaritan, the good Samaritan on the road to Jericho, I must needs go to Samaria in John chapter 4 and talk to the woman at the well. The Samaritan is the New Testament version of the Moabite. And so Ruth just simply morphs over into a new outcast. And Jesus comes along picking Ruth up at every turn in the Gospels and propping up the, the new outsider, um, which forces a question upon all of us that is rhetorical. So it's yours. It's not ours. It's yours. And it's mine. Who's your Samaritan? Who's your Moabite? <laughs> Who's the one that doesn't deserve it? Who's the one outside your periphery? Who's the marginalized? Who's, who's the one? Don't, don't idealize it for another group or say what it is for the political right or the political left or what it is for America. Mm, doesn't work that way. What is it for you? You want to talk about personal salvation? Then make it personal. There's too much of this stuff going on in the church where we want a personal Jesus until it's time to figure out if we're personally responsible. 
And then it's corporate responsibility. You know, then it's systemic. It's not me. It's the system. Mm. If it's your personal Jesus, then it's your personal you. And so you hold him. And you see what he does in you. And what, what does he reveal to you? It's not just what he reveals to her or to him or to us or to them, but to me. So our prayer as we journey with Ruth is, show me Ruth and how I treat her and how I feel about her. And it will not be the same for every person. That's why it's not fair to generalize. Let's pray. Let's pray for this journey. Let's pray for bread in our Bethlehems. Let's pray for the nose to sniff out the fresh bread. Let's pray for the heart to find it. Let's pray for the patience to get there. Let's pray that our journeys into Moab will only remind us of how good the bread could be in Bethlehem and it'll just send us home so that we find the bread we need, not that so we linger longer in Moab. Let's pray for those moments of our lives where we're in Moab and neither does he condemn us. And let's pray for those we know might be there. And there can be a better way. Father, you are good. And there is so much in this that it just smacks me as I read this book. It, it, it smacks me of your beauty and mercy and grace and joy and love and peace. But then I'm confronted in a lot of the ways that I was confronted with Jonah and how he felt about Nineveh. And Father, I don't want to be defined by how vehemently strongly I feel about Moab when there's this beautiful story of Ruth that confronts it. And show us as we journey, show me as I journey through this, what you would have me to see about me in you. I want a return to the freshness of the bread. It's been the mark of my life and it's been the thing that has brought me back so many times from whatever else was there. And Father, I know it's the answer is a return to the bread of life. May we never again have to go through another day where there's no bread in the house of bread, but every day that we are there, remind us to taste and see that the Lord is good. In Jesus' name, amen.